I'm Paul Heron, and this is episode 19 of the Ana Eastneen podcast. Today's a special day. Today we talk to Gail Neen Rosenkrantz, Ana Eastneen's niece and the daughter of Torvald Neen. Gail has a unique perspective on the Neen family because she's part of it. She knew Ani East as an aunt, and she remembers Ani East's parents, Joaquin and Rosa, and she's the only person I know of with such memories. A little background. Gail was born during the Great Depression in Latin America, where her father worked, and she eventually became a lawyer in San Francisco, where she still lives. So let's get this started. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here. Now, you're Anna Eastneen's niece, but uh, in talking about your family, I'd like to go back to uh, another generation, uh, to her parents, both of whom you've met. Right. And let's let's start with your grandfather, Joaquin. What was he like? Well, I didn't meet him very often. I only met him face-to-face once when I was a little girl, and um, it was 1939, and he had just moved to Cuba from Europe. I think the war was um, building up at the time, and um, he had left Europe for the first time in many, many, many years, and he had settled in Havana and was being supported by his uh, cousins on his mother's side, named Castellanos, the Castellanos cousins. Okay. So we were, at that time, my mother and my brother and I were getting ready to leave Cuba and move to Colombia, where my dad had just been hired to work for Texas Oil Company. And my mother knew that my grandfather was in Havana, and she wanted us to meet him. Okay. So she she called and made the arrangements, and we went over there with a taxi. And so the, the way the story goes is that my mother and my brother and I, both, um, all three of us, you know, introduced ourselves to my grandfather, and then there was a little pause, and then I looked at my mother, and I said, you know, I don't like my grandfather. He looks like a boy. <laughs> and and, the, and the, the, the thing was that he dyed his hair, and he had very few wrinkles, and he kept himself looking young for a long time. And my idea of a grandfather was, you know, somebody with a beard and whispers and... All that. So I remember the story goes that this is what I said. And then we had more conversation. And then after a little while, my brother said, Well, I've met my grandfather now. Can I go out and talk to the chauffeur? <laughs> so my poor grandfather said to my mother in Spanish, Madam, your children are savages. <laughs> now that's all. That's all. Uh, that's the only conversation that the only face-to-face meeting I had with my grandfather because we didn't live in Cuba after that anymore. And he uh-huh. stayed in Cuba, and he died in 1949. Yeah. But there's a, another little story about my grandfather. 
And um, when I was a teenager, the summer of um, 47 and 48, I spent a summer vacation in Havana. And I guess I was 16 years old, and I received a bouquet of flowers. And it said, from Joaquin Nin. Hmm. So I was just thrilled, you know, that my grandfather had thought of me and sent me a bouquet of flowers for my birthday. So my mother got the number, and I dialed, and I called him. And he answered the phone, and I said, uh, uh, Don Joaquin, this is your granddaughter. Now, in Spanish, it's su nieta. Uh-huh. And he'd say, he'd say, Julieta? No, I say, su nieta, your granddaughter. Oh, how's Anais and Joaquin? <laughs> he didn't ask how I was, and he didn't ask how my dad was. And I said, fine, and I said, and thank you very much for the flowers. And he was kind of puzzled by that, because it turns out he didn't send me the flowers. Oh. One of his cousins, Nena Castellano, sent the flowers, and she was, you know, she was friendly with my mother, and was very thoughtful, and she sent the flowers from mm-hmm. my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the end of the story about my grandfather. He died in 1949 at the time. I guess I was a senior in high school in the spring, and I got a letter from my father telling me about it and saying, man's best friend is his dog. And he said, my dog's have always been more loving to me than my father ever was. Wow. Wow. So that's a sad thing. He he lost touch with his kids, and whatever connection he had uh, was superficial. Mm -hmm. I'm editing, as you know, uh, the next Ana Isnin Diary uh, trapeze, which is coming out next spring, and... In it, she writes about her father's death, and she noted that her brother Joaquin had tried, as he said, to get close to his father, but never yes. was able to achieve that. He did try. He did. At least he told me he did, and he told me that his mother asked him to. Apparently, they, my uncle and my grandmother were in... Havana during Christmas time one year, sometime between 39 and 49. And um, she said to Joaquin, why don't you go visit your father? Mm. And I think he did try, but I don't think much came of it. Okay. Now, Anis also mentioned uh, that Joaquin had told her that her father had died in a, in a hospital, in a Cuban hospital, and that he had sort of lost his mind? Is, is, do you know anything about that? I think I heard that, too. Yeah. Hmm. Well, may, you know, maybe, maybe he, yeah, maybe he did. People do, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. You get old. Right. So, so in 49. Yeah, he was 70. He was 70 years old. Born in 79. Okay, so then when I saw him in 1939... He was 60. So 
he didn't look 60, not to me, anyway. You think Annie East sort of took after him in that way? Uh, looking young? Yeah. I don't know. I guess so. She was slim, and she didn't seem to have a lot of wrinkles. I think she worked on it. She worked on it, and maybe he did, too. Yeah. Maybe he had a facelift. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Well, the other thing is when uh, my grandfather was really hard up at the end, he didn't have much income, you know. He he played a few times, and he had some jobs at the music conservatory and so on, but he really was being supported by his cousins. And Joaquin sent money to them, and my dad sent money to them to help pay for his expenses. Okay. And they and according to Joaquin, he asked Anais to contribute, and she did not. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let, let's turn our attention to Rosa, uh, your okay. your grandmother. Now, Grandma. <laughs> you you probably knew her a whole lot better. Certainly. I knew her a lot better. I had more opportunities to be with her, and she was definitely interested and very loving. That That's a little different than the austere person that Anise portrays in the diary sometimes. About her mom? Yeah. Well, she had, she was very religious, and she had very strict standards, as far as I know. I mean, my dad always said, you know, that his his mother saw to it that he worked hard and he got good grades. He had to go out and get a job when he was pretty young. And um, and I think my dad felt that Joaquin got it easy because he was the youngest one. Well, that happens with families. Uh, it's not unusual. So maybe she was austere in the sense that she expected high standards of behavior from her kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I never ran into that. You know, as a grandchild, I, I didn't see that side of her. But you considered her to be a, a real grandma. Yeah, a, a real grandma and really wanted to be with us and see us. And yeah, and, and she didn't have much of a chance. And we were her only grandchildren, my brother and I. Mm-hmm. Now, she ended up uh, spending most of her life with your uncle Joaquin. That's right. You know, Anais got married, so she was with Hugo. And my dad was sent off to go to work, couldn't go to college. I think, I think my grandmother did not appreciate the talent that my father had, and she was probably thinking more about Joaquin's musical talents and trying to do everything to push him in the right direction mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. And, and really didn't uh, think about my dad's needs that much. Do you think that was because that she was also uh, a musician, a singer? Maybe, right. She was a musician, and she worked, she taught, and she, you know, she had a lot of connections with people in the music world. And so maybe she just didn't appreciate the talent that my, my dad had. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he got a four-year scholarship to go to Cornell, this was given by the regents of the state of New York. 
and he wasn't allowed to use it. She said, you'll have to go to work wow. to help support the family. And, you know, in those days, kids did what their parents said. Except for Anais. <laughs> Except for Anais. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, on the other hand, these were times when women were not encouraged intellectually. Mm-hmm. You know, so if Anais had some talents, I don't think my grandmother really encouraged that particularly. Didn't say, oh, you should go to this school or you should study that or anything like that. I think it was all just, I think she was just barely trying to keep the family above water. Right. And helping Joaquin end up with a career, a musical career. When Rosa came here to the United States the first time, um, I mean, she she had to struggle to bring in money. And, right. Uh, and, I mean, that, that had to have been awful hard. You know, back, she had to support the kids. Right, back in those days especially. Yeah. Uh, well, what happened, according to my dad, when my grandmother was no longer receiving the money from her wealthy father, her, when my grandmother's father died, the money wasn't coming anymore. And in fact, she didn't get her inheritance because the rest of the family said, you already got your inheritance all these years that you've been getting, you've been supported by Thorvald Kuhlmill. So she really had nothing. And so when the money wasn't coming in anymore, I think my grandfather lost interest. And he wanted to be free of her. I think he was tired of her. So he sent her to live with his parents in Barcelona, and he said, now you stay there until I call for you, and he never called. Mm. And then he was free to go here and there and everywhere, and he did not support his children or his wife. She had to go to work in Barcelona and and, uh, give music lessons, singing lessons, uh, in order to support the kids. And I don't think she was very happy. This lasted about a year. And then her sisters came to Europe, and they said, why don't you come to Cuba, and we'll help you out. And she did not want her children to grow up being the poor cousins. Mm. I don't know whether she thought of it or they thought of it, but they gave her money to buy property in New York, and that house was used as a boarding house for musicians. And that's one way that she supported the family. And then later, she supported the family by buying clothes in New York for her customers in Havana, you know, and getting a commission. I see. For doing that. So she always worked. But as soon as my dad graduated from high school, she said, you have to go to work, help support the family. And then when Anais married Hugo, Hugo really did support the family. Mm, right. And, you know, my dad turned over whatever salary he got to the family, but he was really miserable. And after that, he left Europe. They were living in Paris. He left and he went to Cuba and lived with his aunt Antolina. And, and uh, you know, he had a good time with that branch of the family. And, and he worked. Always worked in a bank. In a bank? I didn't know that. Yeah, in a bank in Havana. 
Let, let's talk about your dad for a few minutes. Okay. Um, he was a very successful man. Um, he, eventually, yeah, eventually. It, it, took, it took him a while, obviously, because, well, you know, he was denied college, which is a huge right. uh, advantage yeah. to have. I guess, in, I guess in those days you could still make it without going to college. But it was, it was a handicap because I think he would have liked to have been an engineer. That's interesting that uh, he had that kind of aptitude. Uh, right. Whereas yeah. everybody else in the family was on the other side of the spectrum. I don't know. Maybe my grandmother had a logical brain. Maybe my grandfather did. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about it to, to be able to speculate. You know, there were other family members that had brains. I mean, you know, math, engineering, science, that kind of thing. Right. Your dad worked in Cuba, then what? what happened? So he worked in Cuba and then came to New York and he applied for a job. This was in 1929. He applied for a job with National City Bank and he met my mother. And I don't know how much time he spent in New York or anywhere. I really don't. All I know is that in 1931, he was in Columbia working for National City Bank of New York. Okay. Which is the, the bank that Hugo used to work for. Right, right. So I'm sure Hugo always helped the best he could. And um, then my father sent a telegram to my mother proposing marriage, and she accepted and mm. sailed down to Columbia, and, and they got married there. At the time, my mother was receiving a monthly stipend from the woman who became my godmother, a wealthy woman in Cleveland where my mother had gone to high school and college. And uh, my mother had uh, not only graduated from college majoring in German, but then she studied in Europe at at Oxford and uh, University of Madrid and in Germany and in Paris. So her field was modern languages. Mm. And she had done everything for her Ph.D. except write her dissertation. So at the time she met my father, she had a decent income. So my father married a woman with money the same way his father did. So they had lovely furniture and silver and this and that. And then the Depression really hit hard. And my brother was born in Boston. We went to Boston for a few months uh, because the, the lady who became my godmother, she was very sick. She had had a stroke. So my mother and father and I went up to Boston, and that's when my brother was born. And then we went to Puerto Rico, and my dad was working for the National City Bank. And at that point, my mother's allowance just disappeared because Aunt Anna lost a lot of money. So when we were in Puerto Rico, my mother always worked. I mean, she, she always worked, period. The only time she didn't work when she was married to my dad was at the very beginning when she was getting that allowance. And then when we went to Mexico in the 1940s, and he, my dad was making good money then. So, so I'm wandering. I'm yeah, sorry. No, well, it's interesting because 
Well, you say the word wandering. It, it, uh, it seems that <laughs> your family was... Uh, well, we did wander, yeah, didn't we? Yeah, you did. But, but and, the, and the other thing is that my father would get disappointed with the work situation from time to time, and then they'd pull up and say, okay, forget it, let's do something else. So uh, when we were in Puerto Rico, my dad was working for the bank, and actually he got a lot of experience there. You know, this is 1933, 34, 33, 34, 35, and the Depression was really hitting everybody hard, mm-hmm. hard. And the bank had a lot of properties that had gone bankrupt, sugar cane processing operations. And so my dad had to manage these companies in Puerto Rico Hmm. for the bank so that they could get them in decent enough shape that they could be sold. Right. So years later, he said that's really where he got his training in working with um, these companies that were broke and turning them around sufficiently to be able to sell them. So when we lived in Puerto Rico, my mother worked. She ran a nursery school at home to make extra money. And then we moved to Cuba, and then my parents got divorced. And um, my dad was no longer working for the bank, and he went to work for one of his uncles, Uncle Enrique, who had a cattle ranch out in the countryside. And uh, my mother taught school, and my brother and my mother and I lived with her sister and brother-in-law and their son for a few years, and my mother taught school. And then she got a job working for the Secretary of Education in the Cuban government, Mm. which was a pretty pretty good job. And then, this is, you know, 1939, and then my dad got a job with Texas Oil Company, and he proposed to my mother again. Really? And she accepted yes. And he told me years later that he didn't want to be his children the way his father had been alienated from. That's what motivated him. So we lived in Colombia for from 39 till December of 43, and he worked for Texas Oil. And my mother worked for the um, Colombo American Society, an organization that tried to strengthen relationships between the two countries. And she also taught English at night, and she also was a stringer for the New York Times wow. and, and occasionally wrote a piece now and then about, this was during the war, and you know, about some of the activities, because there were a lot of German Colombians who had settled in Colombia many, many, many years before. And my dad got frustrated with Texas oil and felt that he just wasn't getting anywhere and, and so on. And, and my mother had won the lottery in Cuba. Really? Yes, a couple of years before. Not the kind of money that people get now, but a decent pot. So she said, why don't you quit your job and let's go back to New York and you go to Columbia and get your degree. Did he? Well, he started and we moved to New York and we were there for a few months. And he started and he went to Columbia for a few months and he really did not feel happy 
you know, he just felt like this was the wrong time, and he wanted to go back to work. And during that period, we did see Anais and Hugo a little bit. Okay. And we also, when we were living in New York, we also got to see my grandmother and my uncle, Joaquin. And we also got to see Joaquin and my grandmother in 1940, because we went to New York for the summer and went and visited Aunt Anna in Boston and visited my grandmother. And I, I don't remember exactly... I'm not exactly sure where, whether Joaquin was already working for Williams or whether he was working somewhere else at the time. Right. You mean in the music department? In the music department. Yeah. Because before he was at Williams, he, you know, he played concerts and he taught here and there, but, you know, it wasn't a big job like the one at Williams or the one at Cal. He actually became the head of the departments. At Berkeley. For a while, yeah, and he was he was happy at Williams, and I think he was happy at Berkeley, but I think he was glad when he retired. But that's I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> but yes, my grandmother stayed with him after the, the other the other children grew up and went on their way. Joaquin took care of his mother. Now my dad always sent money to Joaquin to help with grandmother's expenses. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you help as well. In the 1950s, I, this is something I just kind of stumbled on, and I shared some of these letters from Joaquin to Anais with you that he had written from Spain. He took a sabbatical. Yes, he took a long sabbatical. Yeah. He had a one-year sabbatical, and that money lasted him for three years because he lived with this family in Barcelona that had been close to the family ever since. And the widow, who was the head of the family then, uh, she just loved Joaquin, and she hosted him for three years. And he had his own room and bath, and he had his own studio with a piano. And then he had time to go traveling around the country of Spain, when, when he was composing those tonadas, all this, uh, you know, uh, Spanish folk music-based music. Right. And so he, he made it last for three years. So our grandmother died in 54, and uh, he was gone for three years. And when he came back, he, you know, they kept his job at Berkeley. But he didn't live in the East Bay right away. He was living in San Francisco, and I didn't really know where. He didn't want us to know, I guess, because I think at that time he started living with uh, Theodore Ted, who became um, his life companion. Okay, I, I know nothing about him. About Ted? No. And at the moment, I can't remember his last name. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I didn't see my uncle during that time. I think, Joaquin, you know, this is the 50s, and gay life was not out in the open yet in those times. So it wasn't until sometime in the 60s that Joaquin bought a house on uh, Hillcrest in Berkeley, and then he opened up to us, and he and Ted were part of our family, and we were part of their family from then on, from the 60s on. 
And was Ted a, a musical guy, too? No, he worked for the State Department, and he was a little bit younger than Joaquin. He was a very nice man and a wonderful cook and a wonderful gardener. Mm. And uh, oh, he was really sweet. And his family was also very close to both Joaquin and Ted. You know, he had nephews and nieces. You know, I, I knew that he had a male companion, but I didn't know who he was or anything about him. I remember that uh, Annie East was mentioning in her diary that Joaquin had this woman who wanted to marry him. Um, oh, there were several, several. Yeah, there was one that really was uh, after him, and yeah. she was willing to convert to Catholicism and, right. and, and you know, give up everything you know, in order to marry him. Uh, and, and he probably came close. Well, he he may have, but he claimed that she was too bossy. That, Could be. That was the word he used, too bossy. And what year would, would that, that have was, been? It would have been in, mm, I'm going to say, uh, 50, maybe 54, 53, something like that. Well, his mother was still alive. I think so, yes. Uh, yeah, because I think... I mean, I think he really was close to getting married a couple of times before the grandmother died. Well, that that would have to be a you know a situation where you're trying to be conventional, maybe or yeah, right. Just do what everybody else does. Right. Now let's let's talk about your your aunt Anna East. Um, now, you, you wrote about her in Ben Franklin's wonderful anthology, Recollections of right, East. Right, right. I think I put in everything that I could. So, in other words, you never felt like she was a real, warm, loving aunt? No, no. Well, it, it, it's interesting. Now, when, when we lived in New York those few months, she, she and, and Hugo were living in New York at the time. So we did see them. But she never was interested in us kids. Mm-hmm. Hugo was. Hugo did all kinds of things with Charlie, with my brother. He liked, you know, Hugo was kind of mechanical. He did mechanical things. Maybe it was when he was doing those etchings and all that. And, you know, I mean, we were fascinated that Anais was writing and, and that she had her own printing press because she couldn't get anybody to publish what she wrote. And I, and I do have to say, my mother was reading something that Anais had written, and I, I probably mentioned this in the piece that I wrote. And I read the whole thing. You know, I guess I was 11 at the time. And one of the characters I thought was either a male or a female, and it turned out it was the opposite. That's how confusing the book was for me, uh-huh. for an 11-year-old. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't imagine you were part of her target audience. No. no. What was it like when she became famous? But she didn't become famous until her diary started coming out. Right. And that was 50 years ago. Exactly 50 years ago. 66? 66. 1966. Wow. That's when Diary 1 came out. Yeah. 
What kind of impact did that have on your family? Or nothing. Did it? Nothing. Nothing. You know, Joaquin, my dad said, oh, she's publishing a diary. Oh, it's selling. Well, good for her. You know, it's selling. But then my dad must have written her or called her because they, they spoke. You know, they used to go down to Mexico. At the time, my dad and his, his second wife, were living in Mexico. Oh, they, they lived in Mexico from the 40s until they moved to Chihuahua, where they lived in the States for a while, and then they lived in Chihuahua, Mexico. So when when they were living in Mexico City, Anais would come down every once in a while. Hugo would come down by himself every once in a while. The two of them would come together once in a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hugo had given... My dad, some of his uh, etchings and so on, and, you know, they kept them in the closet. You know the story. You get a phone call. Oh, Hugo's coming. Quick, get that thing. Hang it up so he'll see it. <laughs> so so when, when Anais started actually publishing her diary and, and, and gaining some fame and uh, making some money, my dad told me that he asked her, please do not include me in any of your diaries. Don't write about me. And she did anyway. Not much. But enough to irritate him. Yeah. So that's what it was like. I mean, she never she never came to San Francisco that I know of, and I don't think she went to see Joaquin either when he was living in Berkeley or San Francisco or wherever. Actually, in, in Trapeze, she mentions uh, we, when she would uh, fly out to Los Angeles to be with Rupert Pohl, on the way back she would stop at uh, Oakland, and and she recorded a few visits um, with, with Joaquin and uh, your grandmother. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, so so they did, she did do that occasionally. She did try. Yeah. It's like I said that she and Joaquin were somewhat estranged until after... Rosa died. After Rosa died, then they seemed to reignite the uh, the old bond that they had when they were children. Kids. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were quite close as children. And um, I don't know if that bond lasted. You know, I'm only talking up to about 1955, you know, so um, I'm not sure what their relationship was like after that. I don't know. I don't think that she hung out with him very much because she was keeping this secret from everybody, you know, and it was hard. You know, for instance, David, my husband, was working for Macy's and he used to go to New York on business. And a few times that he went to New York, I asked him to call Anais and Hugo, and he did. And, you know, he saw them and hung out with them and had dinner with them. And one time he went to the movies with Anais, and and I write about it in that article where she held his hand (laughs) in the movies. Uh And then on one occasion, David was flying back to California, and he was going to L.A., and she was on the same plane. 
And so he said, do you want to get a taxi together? And she said, oh, no. And she beat it out of that plane as fast <laughs> as she could. And, she, and David saw this man with a dog waiting for her, and that was uh, Rupert. So David says, uh-huh, something's going on there, mm. you know? But we never, never found out. And then years later, when, in the early 70s, when Anais was already publishing quite a bit, and was going around the circuit, you know, giving talks to colleges and all over. She came to San Francisco, and my dad and his wife came for the um, dedication mass of the uh, Cathedral of St. Mary's here in San Francisco. That was in 71. And she sat next to us at the mass. So it was my dad my stepmother David and I and Anais showed up and sat next to us and then we had a dinner at Trader Vic's afterwards and Anais and my dad got into a big fight because my dad was yelling at her for not respecting his wishes to be kept out of her diaries that were you know her published diaries and she was yelling back at him and it was really uncomfortable for everybody else yeah and but I said to her, well, Anais, I go to Los Angeles on business every month. I did. I was practicing law at the time, and we had a client, a big water company, and there was this big litigation going on. And we'd have these monthly meetings, and I'd be sent to that. And I said, give me your phone number. She said, I don't have a telephone. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, what's your address? She gives me a P.O. box. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so that's, you know, that that settled it. She didn't want to be reached. Well, for obvious reasons. Yes. Now we know why. Yeah, now we know why. Now we know why. And I think, well, by then she probably had had to divorce Rupert, stay married to Hugo. Right. Because she she didn't want Hugo to know that. She had a double life. I think he must have suspected, but anyway. Well, you know, it's interesting. I I discovered a letter uh, at Rupert's house some years ago uh, addressed to Rupert from Hugo. And it, uh. it was written only uh, maybe a week or so after Anise's death. And in the letter, he starts off by saying, before we get down to business, I want to settle something with you right now. He says, I've known about you and Ani Issa's special relationship for more than a decade. So, yeah. So he did know. So he knew. He just pretended he didn't. Right, exactly. Didn't want to raise hell. Right. And, you know. That's it, interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, and yet, I you mean, know. Th- he could have divorced her. Right, he could have, certainly. And yet he was very, very cordial with Rupert and very civil with him um, and thanked him uh, even for, you know, looking taking after care of her. Uh, yeah, taking care of her during her cancer. And yeah. I, I, I just think that takes a hell of a man to yeah. be able to do that. Well, he was. He was. Well, Gail... I want to thank you uh, so much for appearing here today. Uh, it's it's just your your 
your family history is fascinating. It's it's been yeah. a, it's been an complicated. Honor. <laughs> complicated, yes, yeah, that's for sure. It's been a real honor and a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Stay in touch. Oh, I will. You can learn more about the Neen family by visiting anaeastneenblog.skybluepress.com. This has been the Ana East Neen podcast, sponsored by the quotable Ana East Neen, available on Amazon. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.